live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box. Bitch-ass white boy, Tyler Bischoff. It was reported that the Cleveland Indians have decided to remove the term Indian from their name. And Adam Candy. Yet we're cool calling the only black people in Utah the Jazz. On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Grady out once again covering who knows what all-star game that's here in Las Vegas. Maybe all of them. Adam Candy in instead. And we start today with the Raiders. The first bite. Helps if I turn my mic on. Is it going to be fun to build around Derek Carr? Josh McDaniels was on Sirius XM Radio yesterday, and he said it'll be a really fun experience for me to continue to build this thing with him as our leader, speaking of Derek Carr. Um, So we've heard from Josh McDaniels a couple of times uh, when asked about Derek Carr, and both times he's been complimentary, talking about Derek Carr and and how they can win with him, and now building around him as a leader. Heard from the new general manager, Dave Ziegler, who basically said, yeah, extension, we'll see. We got to get to know Derek Carr. Uh, We got to build that relationship with Derek Carr. Do you take anything from Josh McDaniels' quotes about Derek Carr, or is it just coach speak at this point that shouldn't mean anything to us? What I take is that somehow a new general manager and a new head coach are here, and we're having the exact same discussion about Derek Carr (laughs) that we had when John Gruden and Mike Mayock got here. There's nothing different. This is exactly the discussion we had about Derek Carr. And I'm looking right now at the top dozen quarterbacks by pro football focus grade last year or this past year. Burrow, Brady, Rogers, Cousins, Kyler Murray, Herbert, Dak Prescott, Matthew Stafford, Josh Allen, Ryan Tannehill, Mac Jones, Derek Carr. How many of those quarterbacks right now are facing questions from their head coach about whether or not they're going to be the quarterback of their franchise next year. And is here Kirk we are Cousins again. In Minnesota? Uh, Kirk Cousins in Minnesota is locked in. Like, yeah, he's not going fair. anywhere next yeah, year. That's fair. And and frankly, the number four rated PFF passer probably should feel like he has a job <laughs> next year. So what's amazing to me is that we're still having this discussion. And I get that the contract situation factors into it at this point with Derek Carr. But, I mean, at some point, You know, I would never look at anyone in present company this way, but it's like one of those, you know, Cassie Soto relationships where you look at it after time and say, you know, it's probably time to fish or cut bait. And with Derek Carr, just let's make a choice here. Let's either extend or trade because at this point, everyone's just tired of the discussion. And I would assume Derek Carr probably foremost among everybody. So, okay, when it comes, all right, it's time to extend Carr or move on from Carr, start a new era of Raiders football. Do you buy the idea that Dave Ziegler needs to take some time, that Dave Ziegler just got the job and he needs to take some time to figure out if he wants to trade or move on from Carr? Oh, sure I do, because you can only find out so much watching the tape, right? I mean, if you're going to make the decision just on watching the games from afar and watching the tape, you might as well let Tyler Bischoff and Adam Candy make the decision (laughs) as to whether Derek Carr gets to stay. If I'm Dave Ziegler, I want to find out 
what people really think about Derek Carr inside the building. And that's something that you can't get a feel for from just talking to other executives. You got to be on the ground. You got to have time around the guy yourself. Um, yes, you can get a great feel for the leadership of Derek Carr in the way that the Raiders survived everything that happened to them last year. What you can't account for is how much of that was Derek Carr. You can assume a fair amount was Derek Carr, but the way the players have reacted to the Rich Bisaccia dismissal, how much of it was Rich Bisaccia? So if you're in Dave Ziegler's position, of course, you got to come in and find out a little bit more. I have a question for you. If it's you and I that are making the decision, which one of us is the 51% and which one of us is the 49%? Only one of us asks the other when he wants to come on the show. So I think I know <laughs> who has the 51% in this relationship. I'm okay with it. I get it. So here would be, and to me, it all goes back with Derek Carr. It goes back to the same question as to what the Raiders plan to do for next season. Do they look at the landscape in the AFC and say, we won 10 games. That was nice. There's five teams with young quarterbacks that have a good shot to be better than us next season. If you look at it from that perspective, you probably move on from Derek Carr because you're probably looking at next year and saying, we're not going to try to win next year because we don't have a viable path to winning a Super Bowl. I don't think that's what they're doing based on everything that we've heard and based on the fact that they actually made the playoffs for the second time in 18 years. I'd be willing to bet the plan here is to continue to build on the 10 win season, to try to get back to that level and, you know, maybe win a playoff game instead of losing the first playoff game. And if that's the plan, I, it's gotta be Derek Carr. I can't think of a, a better option. I mean, obviously if Aaron Rodgers just should, is like, I want to go to Las Vegas, make it happen. Then, okay. That's obviously you're trying to do that. But outside of that, like if you're trying to win next year, you're keeping Derek Carr. Like he might not be the best quarterback to go win a Super Bowl with, but he's your best option right now to stay where they were last season, to be a 10 win team, to be a team that's got a chance at the playoffs. Like to me, if, if their goal is to continue and build on last year, it's an easy decision. Derek Carr is getting an extension and you're going from there. Yeah, that's so hard. I, I, I really see your, your point. And I also know you only get so many chances to establish what you're going to do as a franchise. And this feels like one of those moments for the Raiders where you have to make the decision as to whether you think this roster can get the job done or not. And I think it's clear that you're in that muddled middle with teams like, say, the Vikings, since you just mentioned Kirk Cousins, who are good enough to not be bad and bad enough to not be good. <laughs> and that's the Raiders. That's where they are right now. And, and I happened to be someone who <laughs> what a month ago at this point had a discussion with the someone on Twitter where I was saying you only have one decision to make about Derek Carr it's not about the money it's not about the leadership it's do you have the guy who can beat Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert Derek Carr in his career if you want to boil it down to QB wins which is simplistic but hey we're talking about making a decision on a quarterback he's one in seven against Patrick Mahomes it's two and two against Justin Herbert so is that the guy? Can you get it done? Can you put more around him to beat those teams enough to keep going? And that's the only decision that this franchise has to make. I made this argument uh, last week where I sort of reversed on myself, where I'm a, I'm a big fan of either Super Bowl contender or blowing it up and rebuilding, trying to find whatever, a rookie quarterback that's good. And, but I, I reversed on it because my thought process was this. 
there are five good young quarterbacks in the AFC and there's, and, and there's a chance that those five guys are the only five teams that win anything for the next five years in the AFC. And so if you're the Raiders, what are the chances that you let go of Carr? You say, we're going to rebuild for two years. Like what are the chances you actually find a quarterback that can compete with those guys and that you're good in, you know, year three of the McDaniel Ziegler era and you can actually get better than you are right now. So to me, in the state of the AFC quarterbacks, given what we're kind of projecting out here, which might be a foolish way to do it, but we're projecting out some really good careers for some young quarterbacks. I can understand the argument of, hey, yeah, we don't think we can catch Mahomes and the Chiefs. We don't think we can actually contend for the Super Bowl with Derek Carr. But we also don't think we're going to be able to do it in three years because we don't think we're getting that guy. We don't think we're going to find that guy in the next three years. So let's just stay good enough to be bad and bad enough to be good or good enough to not be bad and bad enough to not be good and win eight to 10 games every year, make a couple playoff appearances and maybe luck into a playoff win or a good path and find yourselves in the AFC championship on accident once like that to me, I can understand that logic, even if it goes against most of what I believe in when it comes to roster building and team building and it's all or nothing for a team. So I, I want to put this in NBA terms. If you're thinking about it right now and saying, I'm a Raiders fan, I'd sign up for that. Would you? Would you really? Because when the Warriors were ascendant, everybody else in the NBA looked at it and said, we need to just get this roster ready for whenever Durant leaves or whenever this thing breaks up. And that was realistic, right? And that was one team. Now you're looking at, a third of AFC teams potentially being in a position to have a clearly better quarterback than you. And right now, most of those teams have a better roster than the Raiders as well. So if you want to try to build the roster around Derek Carr, great. But think about this. How much better is your roster going to have to be than the Kansas City Chiefs, than the Cincinnati Bengals, than the Los Angeles Chargers in order to make up for the difference between Derek Carr and their quarterback? Because right now, any of those AFC teams that you look at who has a quarterback like those young guys, they are better because they have one of those young guys. You need to build a roster that can compete with that. And if you do right now, what you're going to do is you're going to fool yourself into thinking that you should do it through free agency. And we've seen what the Raiders have done in free agency. There have not been a lot of successes if you're not named Casey Hayward. So other than that, I don't see where doing the let's fix it now makes a lot of sense. So on the idea of you move on from car and you try to build up the rest of the roster to be good. And you're probably not going to be good next year if you do that, but to be good in, in year two, year three, year four of McDaniels and Ziggler, do you think they can make the roster good enough to where, Hey, they drafted a competent rookie quarterback and even though that guy is not Burrow, Mahomes, Allen, Jackson, and Herbert, they can still beat those teams. Like basically what the New England Patriots are with Mac Jones. Like, do you think they can build the roster up in, in a two or three year time span that they get average rookie quarterback play, uh, play? You're paying that guy $7 million instead of $37 million. Can the roster be good enough? Can it be turned over in three years to actually contend at the top of the AFC? You, like me, follow Eric Eager on Pro Football Focus on social media. And one of the things that Eric Eager, who is an actual doctor of math, talks about is that the confidence interval, basically the range of outcomes on a quarterback 
is actually super narrow. Like once you know who they are, you pretty well know what you have. There are not a lot of outlier cases where you say to yourself, all right, well, maybe they're going to get better. Derek Carr is who he is. And I've argued for a long time that there is a way to win games with Derek Carr. But I, in saying that, did not factor in a Patrick Mahomes, a Joe Burrow, a Justin Herbert, a Lamar <laughs> Jackson, right? A, there's a way to win games at this point in the NFC. Yeah, There's a way to compete in the other conference. Like the, to take the Warriors analogy out, if LeBron wants to operate in the Eastern Conference, he's got a pretty good reason to do it at the time that the Warriors are the Warriors. So, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, I, I think you say Derek Carr can be that guy, but I don't know that you can make the roster around him enough to compete with those other teams. And at that point, do you want to keep just patching along? Because what has made this team good, right? Now, right now, you have fourth-round pick Max Crosby playing like a defensive player of the year candidate, right? You're going to have to pay Max Crosby before too long, which means that if you want to try to build the roster around Derek Carr with a big contract and Max Crosby with a big contract, then you're going to have to hit a lot better than you've hit in the draft and in free agency for any number of years. And that is something that this new front office would have to prove. Yeah, I, that's going to be probably the biggest thing here is how much better do the Raiders get drafting wise? Because in all, in all seriousness, Gruden and Mayock blew it. I mean, the Raiders, they acquired a lot of first round picks. They had a ton of draft capital at the top of the draft and they blew it. I mean, we're talking about a completely different roster. The roster could have been good enough around Derek Carr to have won stuff this year to, to potentially still be playing if they had hit on honestly any of those first round picks. I mean, looking back on it, who, which ones did Colton Miller, I guess, but that was pre Mayock. Like if they hit on any of the Mayock era first round picks, they're much better position. If they hit on two or three of them, it might be a different conversation. And that's really been the biggest issue. So can the Raiders, the new GM, the new era, draft better? And granted, they probably won't have the same draft capital. I guess if they trade Carr, they could get back some picks for it. But I assume they're not coming in and trading away the two highest uh, played, uh, would-be highest paid players in Cooper and Mack for first-round picks to get better draft capital to then screw it up. All right, coming up next... Signing day for UNLV net yesterday, Marcus Arroyo. He's going a different path than next season. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler featuring Adam Candy. That's my boy Lane Kiffin who probably needs to shut up and just let players get their money. However, I will say there is 1% of me that is very glad Lane Kiffin yelling about that simply because Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M is very upset that people are insinuating he only got the best recruiting class in Texas A&M history by paying players through NIL deals. So I'm okay with annoying other coaches. But National Signing Day here for UNLV. They did not sign any high school kids yesterday. They signed seven transfers. That's added to the 10 players they had signed back in December in the early signing period. That 10-player class uh, was only six high schoolers. So they already had four transfers. Doing math in your head quickly, they've got 17 players coming in. 11 of them are transfers. And here's my, here's my hot take of the morning on UNLV football. Marcus Arroyo is in a very important year three where he very well might be fired if he's not winning four, five, or six games next season. First off, 
UNLV kept Keith Whitf- or Keith Whitfield kept Eric Harper from interim AD to full-time permanent athletic director. Marcus Arroyo is not getting any sort of reset with a new boss. He's not getting any sort of, well, let's see what this guy can do with a new boss. Eric Harper has been here for the entire time that Marcus Arroyo has been the head coach at UNLV. Presumably, he knows everything about Marcus Arroyo in the football program. There's nothing new he needs to learn about Arroyo. Those first two years absolutely count. And if UNLV, again, struggles in year three, if we're talking about a two-win football program in year three, that could be it. I mean, I I could very honestly see Eric Harper deciding this is the first big move I'm going to make. We've gotten three years of non-productive football, and it's time to make a change. Marcus Arroyo does have a big buyout, but it is negated as soon as he takes another job. So if Arroyo is to get fired by UNLV and become a coordinator and assistant at another college, or honestly, it's it's any job basically is what his contract lays out. UNLV immediately stops paying that buyout. So I think there is reason to believe Arroyo is under some pressure. And then you look at who you're bringing in, 11 out of 17 guys being transfers, that's normally what coaches do when they want to win right away. When you go the high school route, that's typically, oh, we're going to try to win in the future. We saw that from Marvin Menzies on the basketball side. His big thing was let's build for the future. Let's build this thing, build a good core. Tony Sanchez did some of that as well. And then at the end of Tony Sanchez's era, he started taking more junior college transfers to try to make the team better right away. There is one caveat to that, and that is we do have looser transfer rules, right? This is a different era of college football where you can get guys to can transfer and play right away from Division I schools with no problem. So it is a different way to build your roster that previous coaches didn't have. But I do think there is going to be a lot of pressure on Marcus Arroyo this year. I don't think there is anything about year four that's guaranteed for him. No, there is nothing that's guaranteed. The, the one piece that I would say benefits Marcus Arroyo by Eric Harper being his, air quotes, new boss is that Every athletic director who comes into a new situation already has a list of candidates in mind. That is something that we know for sure. So if you are Marcus Arroyo, at least you know that Eric Harper has been with you the whole time. Eric Harper was there when you got hired. So you have that working to your advantage. Um, That being said, everything else you just said is absolutely true. There, and listen, there is a chance that Eric Harper really likes Arroyo. Like, we don't, I don't know anything about their relationship. He might love Marcus Roy. He might have been one of the main guys pushing for him to get hired and might give him more benefit of the doubt, depending on how this year goes. Or it could be the exact opposite. He could have been like, we never should have hired this guy in the first place. So that is another, I think, important detail for a guy that's been here that we don't really know the answer to. I do know uh, Eric Harper's introductory press conference when he got asked about the football program and Marcus Arroyo. I did think one of his uh, answers was slightly interesting because he mentioned, hey, Marcus Arroyo is going to get this going. They lost six games by one score last year. Like he brought up the idea of, hey, they lost a lot of one possession games. He turned some of those around and all of a sudden UNLV's got a a respectable record. So there was a, you know, I, a, I like that answer because that's a very, that's something you and I would say on here. That's, hey, you win or lose a lot of one score games. It's usually going to go the opposite way or at least balance out close to 50-50. So I enjoyed that. One other thing from signing day, uh, Mike Kramala wrote a story on this. UNLV's losing Charles Williams. Uh, His eligibility is up. He had 253 carries last year. No other running back had 20 carries 
for UNLV last season. Again, Charles Williams had 253. No other running back had 20 carries for UNLV last season. He was the only guy they handed the ball off to. They don't have a running back in this recruiting class. Again, they only have 17 guys right now. They can absolutely go sign a high schooler or get a transfer running back at some point in the future. But that doesn't appear to have been a priority for Marcus Arroyo. Meanwhile, they got a transfer wide receiver from Michigan State. Their wide receiver room looks pretty talented. They got Harrison Bailey, the transfer quarterback coming in from Tennessee, who um, Arroyo said he'll be in contention for the number one job. Might actually end up winning that number one job. Might have it already, just not officially. But basically, Mike Kermala's point was, they don't bring in a running back. They do bring in a high, highly rated transfer quarterback. They got another wide receiver. It's a good wide receiver room. This team might be extremely pass-heavy next year. Like, it was a pretty balanced. It wasn't like they were triple option, run the ball 75% of the time. But this might be an extremely pass-heavy offense next season, which will be interesting to see, given that we haven't actually seen UNLV pass the ball with a lot of success in two years under Marcus Arroyo. Well, we also haven't seen Marcus Arroyo develop a quarterback in two years, and that's going to be the key to this whole thing. Because you just mentioned whether it's Bailey, whether it's Brumfield or Friel, and frankly, both of those guys showed a little bit last year. They showed at least the ability to keep those one-score games competitive. I mean, this in the end is going to be on the quarterback room and on Marcus Arroyo as a reputed offensive mind to be able to develop a quarterback. That's it. When it comes down to it in the long run, because last year, would UNLV have chosen to have to rely on a running back as much as they did? No, they, they certainly wouldn't have in an ideal situation, but we've also seen that from UNLV, whether it's Lexington Thomas or, or anybody else over the years when they've had a decent offensive line, a really good running back and no quarterback, that they've had to go back to the running game because that's the only way they can remain competitive. That's not the key to getting to the top of the mountain in the Mountain West. Also important, quarterback stays healthy. They had some of the worst injury luck that oh, you could by have far. in that position last year. Like Doug Brumfield, I feel like he got hurt every single half. Not even game, just half that he played in last season. So it'd be Harrison Bailey, if he's awesome, but he gets hurt in game two, all of this probably means nothing. Coming up next, we get into the Brian Flores lawsuit against the NFL with Daniel Lust. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. We lied to you. We do not have Dan Lust coming on the show this morning, but we'll get more into the Brian Flores situation anyway because um, Cameron Wolf yesterday was on NFL Network, and he said that he's spoken to one of the witnesses that can back up Brian Flores's claim that he was offered $100,000 for every loss back in 2019 by Dolphins owner Stephen Ross. Um Brian Flores, obviously suing the NFL, a lot of allegations in there. This is one of the uh, serious ones as re relates to the integrity of the league. Do you think we had Miles Simmons on yesterday, Adam, and he he brought up the idea that Stephen Ross like losing his team if this is proven true. Like, does Stephen Ross lose the Miami Dolphins if if, it, if in any way it's proven that he offered a hundred thousand dollars to his head coach for every loss? One hundred percent. Because the owners will only close ranks around the things they can get away with. And no owner thinks they can get away with having a paper trail of tanking. Do they think they can get away with tanking? Yeah, of course. Do they think they can get away with being so stupid as to have a paper trail or some sort of smoking gun? Well, we're about to find out. 
and that's the situation we have not only with Brian Flores and and Stephen Ross, but apparently in Cleveland as well. And it wasn't Hugh, just Hugh Jackson, by the way. The president of Hugh Jackson's charitable foundation was also out on social media yesterday <laughs> saying, we have receipts. So this is going to get really ugly really fast. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how we keep things in proper compartments here right because yeah. there's the there's the racism piece that has to be front and center to the entire thing but the idea of fully incentivized tanking against the rules potentially against the law is something that is going to be a massive seismic thing if it's proven yeah and that the compartmentalization of it is keeping this because it's it's two completely different things i mean that is uh Brian Flores thinks one of them sort of helped lead into the other one, but it's two completely different things. And you have the Brian Flores claiming that, hey, their hiring processes and the Rooney rule is a sham and everything, but he's also out here saying, well, at the same time, my owner didn't like me because I wouldn't lose games on purpose. On the Hugh Jackson side, he was on this morning uh, with Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max, and Kind of confusing, uh, but he basically said that he did get paid bonuses for losing games. Uh, but he kind of pushed back on the idea that he willingly or knowingly accepted them. He was like, yeah, I just got bonuses directly deposited in my account. I didn't really know what they were for, but apparently they were for losing. He did give a number, $750,000. So you have a couple of teams here. I'd be curious to know receipt wise like what would his uh his charity his foundation have like what 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 would they have did he take that money and say hey here's my tanking money i'm gonna put it into my foundation well at least the existence of the money in the first place right yeah i mean i doubt i doubt that his transfer to the bank says nice tanking you know like i think (laughs) we're probably much uh much smarter than that but we'll find out what jimmy haslam really did with the browns because part of the discussion uh again amazingly from the foundation was that it wasn't just Hugh Jackson, right? That it was members of the front office as well who were receiving bonuses in Cleveland for incentivized losing because there was, according to what they said, a four to five year plan of losing, apparently to get the Browns to the point where Baker Mayfield could submarine their season. So, you know, (laughs) we're going to find out just how brazen NFL owners really are because with the Colin Kaepernick situation, the lawyers were able to fight this thing off to the point where there was never discovery, right? Like we never got to see any of the truly salacious stuff. They're attempting to do the same thing with the Washington football team investigation. If the Stephen Ross tanking situation really is what it is, this might be the one that the NFL lawyers can't keep quiet. I love the idea of Jimmy Haslam Venmoing Hugh Jackson money and him having to type in the little description. Oh, and 16. Nice. <laughs> no, it would never be words. It would have to be emoji, right? Like <laughs> yes. he would, th- he would think he was being clever if he just put like a football and a knife or something like that. Like good job killing the football. Like, you know, like I don't know how this could play out in any way that would be funnier than emoji i don't know maybe it would be like bill belichick and all his exclamation points like to see something like an nfl owner texting emoji for tanking there's probably a tank emoji on venmo i bet i bet you type in tank you get a fun little emoji that pops up you could yeah you get like an army tank with that okay would that be good enough in court like could you be like listen 
I've got the proof. They paid me to lose because he sent me this money on Venmo and the emoji to describe it was just a tank. You know how people have talked about how determining <laughs> if a catch in the NFL shouldn't be the referee and someone up in the booth going to a little monitor. It should be a panel of like 50 people who all watch the play at the same time and just vote on whether or not that's a catch. That's what we should be doing if there's a tank emoji <laughs> in Venmo to Hugh Jackson, right? Like we just ask a bunch of people, hey, what do you think? It seems pretty obvious to me. I know that people are probably saying, hey, idiot, that's a jury. But no, I think we should just make it a lot faster and must and uh, paint more painless. All right. So how do you and I, two people that, you know, enjoy the idea of a team saying, yeah, we're not going to try to stay in purgatory where we maybe make the playoffs, maybe miss it. We're going to try to rebuild for the future. Help me out here for the next couple of weeks. How am I supposed to properly like advocate teams like the Raiders sometimes? Hey, you should tank. You should rebuild while at the same time being like, eh, don't pay your coach $100,000 to do it. Okay. Think about it this way. If you want your coach to be tanking, don't you think this is a discussion that should be had in the interview, right? Because this uh, alleged Brian Flores situation happened almost immediately after he started. So if you're doing it in the interview, can't you just pay the guy more in the first place? Can't you, if you get the right candidate who's like, hey, listen, here's what we want you to understand. This team is in a rebuild, wink. We're going to be trying to build the roster up over a number of years, wink, wink. Then just pay the person more if they go, I hear what you're saying, big, big wink. <laughs> so now we have, do we have wink emojis on Venmo? Can we put a oh, tank sure. and a wink? <laughs> a tank and a wink. That oh, Come on. Any judge is going to look at that and be like, you know what? The hell with the rest of the trial. Let's just get, let's get out of here. You're screwed. We're done. No, I like the idea of explaining to some 78-year-old guy who doesn't quite know how to use his iPhone what a tank emoji is on Venmo. That would actually take probably five or six days. And then once he got it, it's a pretty clear answer. Don't you think that Stephen Ross probably also is texting Jim Harbaugh pictures of dolphins? <laughs> yes, I believe he is. He's like probably he's sending him a screenshot of a story that says like, Dolphins' brains are bigger than humans, so they must be smarter and come to Miami. And then doing then doing the big eyes emoji, right? <laughs> like thinking that that's super subtle. I will say the main thing we're missing from those Bill Belichick texts was an emoji. If he had had an emoji in there, I don't know if we would have been able to handle that. I don't know. I, I My favorite part, actually, was him signing the BB at the end to be like, hey, we're done here. Like, I'm not texting any more than this. I want you to know that my signature means you are not getting another text from me. I have already screwed myself enough. By the way, uh, your own Weitzman, who covers the NBA, he was tweeting about this this morning. He thinks that Bill Belichick didn't text the wrong Brian. He thinks Bill Belichick thought it was Brian Flores. Like, he thought he must have been told, hey, Brian's getting the job, and Belichick assumed Brian Flores, and so he texted Brian Flores, and then went back and double-checked, and was like, oh, crap, they told me it's Brian Dabble that's getting it, not Flores. To which I say, cool? Because I, I mean, the, out the outcome is the same. 
Yeah, but no, I'm saying like we, you know, Bill Belichick. I think that might be worse for you know running with an assumption of a Brian when there's two Brian candidates than it is texting the wrong Brian. No, you know what it would be? It would be a wonderful statement on Bill Belichick, which is something we don't get to say very often. If Bill Belichick had two assistant coaches in his past named Brian, and he immediately assumed that the black head coach was the one who got the job, that would be a much different statement than everything we've heard in the NFL. Look at Bill Belichick coming out the real winner of his text being leaked. All right, coming up next, we're going to do a fun story about prop bets and how stat keepers in the NBA are ruining them. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. Adam Candy in for Ed Graney today. A fun story. A fun story for... Adam Candy, and one that I am going to have a great follow-up for all of you guys on. But, story at the Action Network on prop bets, the NBA, and stat keeping. Apparently, uh, it's happened a few times this year where there have been questionable decisions, like who gets a steal, who gets credited with the rebound, uh, does this guy actually get an assist, depending on what the other guy did before he scored, and guys not getting the exact uh, stats that they should be getting. And it can cause some problems because we have a lot of betting on props now, over-unders on rebounds and steals and points and assists and all of that. So Action Network, they talked to uh, Senior VP of Gaming with the NBA, Scott Kaufman-Ross. He was asked about it. He said, are there slip-ups that happen? Yes, they are rare, but our system is constructed to catch everything before anything is noticed. They actually went into detail on the on the stat-keeping story here where they have, basically, if, if you've been in a press box or no, there's somebody that calls out what's happening. And there's another person literally typing it into a computer. They actually have two people for each job to sort of double check it. But I don't. I'm curious, just from the betting side, how how big of a deal? How much has this happened? Like, how much does this pop up where people are complaining about uh, a missed a, a stat of being assigned to the wrong person or a missed stat even to somebody? Well, that's why basketball and hockey in particular have so many questions, right? Like, it's you can't fake stats in football, right? Like. You either gained the yard or you didn't. You either rushed the ball or you didn't. And in baseball, it's pretty much the same thing. And yes, I guess you could use the official scorer and say it wasn't a hit or not, right? But when it comes to basketball, so many of these things are subjective, right? Assists are highly subjective. Rebounds can even be subjective to to some degree versus was it an individual's rebound versus a team rebound if they kind of get a hand and it gets knocked out of bounds, that sort of thing. So it is a huge deal. Because prop betting is something that as part of legal sports betting is growing enormously. And so what the what the point has to be is finding any of the potential weak points and cutting them off, right? Could someone in an official scorer position be bribed? Yeah, they could. It's not likely, but they could. And the greater point for the NBA is this. As legal sports betting has grown everywhere in the country... The NBA has led the charge going out there first saying that states that are legalizing uh, sports betting should be paying an integrity fee to the league because it's going to cost them more to monitor integrity. Apparently, they only needed to monitor this integrity uh, once legal sports betting started in the U.S., not for decades before that. And also that... they Once the integrity fee passed, well, we're now saying you have to put in a rule in your state law that says sportsbooks can only use our official data feed. 
that we have a data feed that is that is better. It is the only one that is our official stats, and you should be using ours. Well, you better get yours right if you're going to have it put into law that it's the only one that people can use. All right. Let me give you a fun story on stat corrections here. Uh, for those of you that, that listen to this show, uh, you know that I complained earlier this week because Bryce Hamilton against Colorado State. He finished that game and the official stats said he had 45 points. Well, they went back and made a correction and he ended up with only 42 points. And this correction came, I don't know, 30 minutes after the game had ended. So, you know, already sent some tweets off about it. Ed Grady went to bed thinking he scored 45, woke up, saw that the Review Journal said he had 42 and thought they screwed it up, thought the paper screwed it up. So some official stat keeping errors there. I know now who to blame for this. It's Mike Gramala. Mike Gramala is the reason that there was a stat correction that took away Bryce Hamilton's 45 points because Mike Gramala was in Fort Collins to cover this game. And Mike Gramala saw a three-pointer go in, and he thought Bryce Hamilton made it. And he looked down, and he saw that they credited it to Justin Webster. And so Mike, Mike actually texted me during it, and I told him, no, Justin Webster made that. But apparently other people on press row thought Bryce Hamilton made it. So Mike went and told the UNLV SID, who then went and talked to the stat keeper, and they just changed it immediately to Bryce Hamilton. So Mike Ramala is the reason Bryce Hamilton didn't score 45 points, kind of. So I would assume Bryce Hamilton is never again getting in the golf cart and <laughs> taking a lap around the Thomas and Mack Center with Mike Ramala? I would guess not. So but that leads me to this question. Is there a lot of prop betting on college basketball players? It's actually not allowed in most states. Okay, because um, that because the process that they laid out in the uh, the in the story here about the NBA is how there's two there's four people basically that are inputting this or helping input this as plays happen. Right, there's four people there. College basketball games, it's probably only one most of the time, and in this case, one of them was heavily influenced by Mike Gramala not being able to see who was shooting a three. In college basketball, the sort of standard for who's keeping live stats is significantly lower than the standard in the NBA. So that would be a place where you'd have, I would assume, a lot more mistakes, a lot more screw-ups and than you would in the NBA. So in college, there are usually at least two people, one person calling and one person inputting. Right, um, yes. You know, so, But the thing to understand is that with all prop betting, whether it's pro or college, but especially with college, the limits are usually so low on these bets that sports books are not really at high risk of losing a lot. And, you know, this is why we talk about integrity monitoring in the first place, because if you offer prop markets on individual players for Kansas, Kentucky, well, yeah, it's a national TV game. It's something that's going to be closely watched, et cetera, et cetera. And you probably have some level of ability to be comfortable in who's scoring the game and how they're scoring the game. If it's Tarleton State and Rio Grande Valley, you're probably not offering $1,000 limits on prop bets because you have no idea how things are being managed, right? Like you're going to, as a sports book, you're going to manage your risk appropriately to the situation. There are some states that explicitly ban uh, prop betting on college players because they feel like college players are more susceptible to being bribed. 
quickly here, did you see the story from Europe uh, last month about a soccer player or a bet being placed on a specific soccer player to get a yellow card? For I like saw the 65, video. 000, yeah, like $65,000 in the last 10 minutes of the game. Yeah, so. Yeah. Like that, that was... and by the way, that is the sort of thing that probably should not be allowed in the first place. Don't take those bets. <laughs> no, no, we got to bet on when a player is exactly going to get a yellow card. It's very important, Adam.